Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilowitz. It's This Week in XR. Today is March 4th, 2022. Um, and uh, we have a fantastic guest. Oh, and I also should thank our sponsor, Verbella. Thank you, Verbella. We have a fantastic guest today. I can't wait to talk to him. Rob Tursek, he's a consultant. He's a uh, speakers, talks all over the world about uh, tech concepts. Uh, and, uh, and he wrote a fantastic book a few years ago called Vaporized, which I highly recommend. Um, it's about the incredible consolidation of everything um, by tech. And, um, and I, I think it is uh, incredibly relevant today. So we'll bring him in uh, in a little while. Not a huge news week, I think partly because everybody, you know, it's all about M Mobile World Congress, but Mobile World Congress was a little like CES. I mean, it was, you know, a third of the size. You saw pictures of, you know, halls that used to be packed shoulder to shoulder with everybody practicing social distancing and, and still wearing masks. So uh, it was not a, a the kind of show that it usually is. Um, you know, Meta tried to take advantage of it, but they weren't even there. Uh, you know, Zuckerberg wasn't there in person. So it, it um, Meta, of course, used the opportunity to um, do this let's build the metaverse together thing, with which is always a little cringeworthy. I think they're sincere, but it's just, um, it, it's a little bit like, uh, I want you to build the metaverse uh, with me, but I'm in charge. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> let's hope that, you know, maybe this um, Mobile World Congress is hopefully the last gasp of the pandemic culture um, yeah, where, so. you know, the in-person events at scale were still pretty restrained. And this maybe is the last one. I think NAB is coming up in a month and maybe we'll see if it's a real NAB. We're hoping yeah. that, you know, no, no new piece of the puzzle drops on us um, and uh, we'll actually be able to do a, a full-on trade experience. Um, and you're largely right about, obviously, the meta of meta and trying to find that uh, group speak of come help us build this, but I think everybody's concerned it's a little disingenuous, right? It's it's come help us build our vision. Uh, right, right. Um, and, so and, I think and that's also, a valid point to be concerned about. You know, I've, I've, I've watched the meta movie come keynote from October uh, with my students now for two semesters. Oh, wow. And, and you know, the one thing that, that people were say after watching it, because, you know, of course we watch Ready Player One and we read the book and we talk about oh. that. Uh, the one thing everybody says is, oh, Metaverse, uh, uh, Facebook or Meta is building the Oasis. That is their vision. You watch the movie and then you watch the movie Ready Player One and you're like, oh, this is their vision. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, obviously, I think their vision does not include dystopia. Um, you know, they'd like to have Ready Player One. They'd like the Oasis without all of the uh, bad futurism, uh, oh. only the good futurism. It's sort of um, uh, the Oasis uh, channeled by Walt Disney. Right. A very good point. So yeah. uh, moving on to other news, um, we had Dan O'Brien last week. Uh, who's the general manager of HTC. We had a great conversation with him. Um, but one thing he didn't mention to us was a pending announcement uh, by HTC at Mobile World Congress. And we can speculate on why he didn't mention it. Um, but uh, they launched something they're calling Viveverse. Right, Viveverse, yes. So everybody's in on the verse, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I have to say, I mean, they, they, they have been thoroughly thumped by the press. So it's a little bit like piling on, but um, 
you know, I think that that the Vive versus everything you can do with a Vive headset. Well, I also think it's, you know, people are starting to see through the veneer of conceptual artists and marketing companies being hired to create a vision of the metaverse, a story behind the metaverse. And you and I, and what'll be interesting is our guest, Rob, I'm sure will have some very interesting thoughts about this because he's yeah. very, very insightful about these things is this like hire a you know professional marketing and storytelling and concepting team to come up with this idea. They'll come up with the same story over and over again when what we know is that this thing we call the metaverse is going to have all these unique tentacles that are ill-defined and won't be really defined by a company that is trying to push their wares onto the world. So they, I think, get some apt criticism for yet again, like saying, oh, this is what it's going to look like. And here's someone, you know, turning their avatar from reality and shopping. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the diving whale on steroids. The diving well on steroids, back to our Magic Leap uh, discussions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, last thing, Nike Land on Rob in Roblox. Yes, of course. Uh, these, these are, you know, brands are crashing the metaverse. Brands are crashing the metaverse because it becomes the place that marketing teams are asked to go and market to, right? Go build something there because right. maybe there's someone there that matters, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, like I said, the, the big news this week is that we've got Rob Tersek. So let's bring him in. Rob Tursek, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Ted. Hi, Charlie. Thanks hey, Rob, for having nice me. to see you. Thanks for joining us. Um, first, first of all, before we get into some of the things we were green rooming about, uh, I do want, want to talk about your book, Vaporized, for a minute. Oh, cool. um, you know, it, it is, it is um, a huge bestseller. People are talking about it all over the place. Um, do you want to share just a quick synopsis of it and yeah sure yeah the, sure the so, genesis of it and yeah vaporize is about the dematerialized economy and and when i wrote it i was principally focused on what smartphones were doing to things like media you know the businesses that the three of us have always worked in but of course the the, the impact goes way beyond media now because you know the things that have been vaporized into your smartphone include things like consumer electronics and you know with uber you can get transportation without owning a car and so forth so the, the book examines this phenomenon of replacing physical stuff with software and the idea that you can get software instantly now over the air. In other words, you can add functionality to your phone just by tapping an icon. We take it for granted, but that's a radical notion. And that, that whole sector, since I wrote the book, has grown and grown and grown. It's actually grown about four times in value. Uh, and of course, the companies that do this, this vaporization, you know, the country, companies that lead the dematerialized uh, field. Well, those companies have all tripled in value uh, in the in the meantime, you know, most notably Apple, but not limited, right? Not, not limited to Apple at all. Uh, so it's a pretty important phenomenon. I consider it to be the defining, you know, driver of the 21st century economy. Every company now has to think about, is my business going to get vaporized? Is what I make going to get replaced by software? And if they don't have a good answer, the answer is probably somebody else is thinking about it. Right. Well, and what's interesting, Rob, for those that happen to be watching this as opposed to listening to the podcast, I'll give them the visual reference for those that are listening. There's a bunch of physical artwork that I know you have created yourself right behind you in your house there in Hollywood. And the idea of you writing conceptually and it becoming so well understood about these digital metaphors that have moved across essentially every sector of life and business and you sort of living the life of both sides of it. You know, all of those things behind you could just be NFTs, right? But well, 
So I'll, I'll let you, I'll stop there and let you comment. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You're suggesting that somebody does something with an NFT? <laughs> but it's totally true like i could i could rip, represent every single one of those paintings uh, as as an nft and, and and people have suggested it as well uh, you know for me um I'm, I'm not really that interested in doing paintings for money it's a hobby and right. and it's important i think if you work in digital media all day long like the three of us do i think you need to have some alternative you know you have to have a way to kind of digitally detox uh, for me, it's playing piano, uh, it's it's working out, and it's you know yoga or um, or painting. Like those are my things, and they're all really like hands on. You know, like they're very tangible. So yeah, there is an element of irony. I know, and also look, man, I published a hardbound book that's about vaporization and dematerialization. Believe me, I've heard it all. But I would say, you know, the digital sales completely outpace the physical sales of the book, and I think that's true for almost every business book. I don't know if that's true for for. Um, no, it's totally true of my books. Even across though, the board, even though right? they're even though they're AR enabled books, which I thought justified them being printed on paper. Um, the truth is, I sell very few paper books. Yeah, right. They're, well, they're, the, they're all ebooks. I mean, I probably have four hundred is... books on this iPhone right now. It's, it's totally nuts. <laughs> I'm you know because I'm a little bit. Yeah addicted to digital media that's why yeah. i have all these good practices yeah <laughs> well, and, and the biggest part of what you know you discuss in the book and you discuss in in person with your clients and in speeches and stuff is that especially across youth culture this completely eliminating the idea of physical tangible things has become yeah, yeah. a daily occurrence and it's part of their yeah. dna at this point right that's exactly and right the three of us at a certain age we can embrace it, but we can also struggle with it, right? And I think we all sure. make representations of how we yeah. have to balance it in various ways. Yeah. But when we go a generation or two down from our age, you start to see people that are literally are living a completely digital-oriented life and don't really even understand the value of physical goods and objects, yeah. which then leads us to this interesting sort of moment. I was doing a case study with uh, with UCLA last week, and one of the students came up with the best line that I'm going to use over and over again. The artist formerly known as Facebook has now <laughs> adopted this wholly to the point of, you know, doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on this idea of the virtual understanding of reality, right? Which is what you're largely thinking about all the time, right, Rob? Yeah. And look, man, we're living in that right now. Just think about what's going on in the world around us. Just the news, you know, every single day, this war and, you know, this sort of weird war yep. in, in Ukraine, but there's so many different perceptions of it that are being promoted. Uh, so I guess the point is once you turn things into software, once you start to represent things as software, well, you can warp them and shift them and change them and you can start to bend reality. Uh, this is actually... You know, I don't know if you guys, you guys have noticed this. Russia has unleashed an unbelievable number of bots on Twitter. All, all of a sudden, I'm like getting tagged and finding all these accounts that have just been created and have 93 followers. That's exactly right. And, and yeah, you know, so they're just pumping out, pumping out Putin propaganda. So it's an interesting preposition, you know, like, and, and I think... Um, the, the implications go even further, you know, beyond like bending reality and, and uh, reshaping or warping the way people perceive reality. It's kind of to the point you were making, Ted, it's about the values. Like, what is it that we really value? Um, people used to value tangible stuff, like, you know, gold, right? That was about like the most valuable thing you could hold if you were trying to hold value. Now there's a generation that believes Bitcoin is going to be way more valuable. And, you know, candidly, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp too. I got a foot in both camps. Uh, so your point, Ted, is really good. It's like, look at this way. Um, you know, for the past 15 years, there's a whole generation that grew up with smartphones, right? And, and some of them even before that. So those are kids who grew up playing Angry Birds in the backseat of their mom's car. Mm -hmm. And then they got a little older 
Twitter and they got into Snapchat or, you know, or Insta, and then they got a little bit older and now they're using Tinder, you know, so like they just, as they progress through life, there's going to be digital apps, mobile apps for them. Uh, what they're not going to do is ever adopt the habits that we had, you know, like consoles, game consoles and buying media cartridges or buying DVDs. Those are just habits they don't have. And, and by the way, I had to buy, uh, I, I was in the TV Academy and I finally dropped out because I couldn't get the point of like television. I haven't worked in in years. And, um, and they send DVDs out screeners. Yeah, like when you're voting on the Emmy. DVDs from the PGA. So it's sort of a ridiculous. I no longer like, had a computer that had an optical drive. And I was like, I have to go buy a DVD player in order to watch the stuff from the TV Academy. I feel like I'm stepping back in time. So it turns out nobody makes DVD players. The only place you can buy them is on eBay because it right. literally they stopped manufacturing them a couple of years ago. So the whole thing to me felt like an anachronism. And, and that's, you know, to your point, Ted, like that's the world we're in right now. It's like half the people are still in that physical world. Half the people are in this digital world. And it's going to get weirder because of Web3. It's about to get extremely weird. Mm. Web3, what is Web3? Help me out. Yeah, so Web3 is, you know, candidly right now, Web3 is a story. Okay, so uh, you'll hear a lot of different perspectives about Web3. And there's a lot of people who are trying to spin it in a certain direction because they've got a vested interest of one sort or another. I spent quite a bit of time in the last couple of months trying to dig into this because while I'm interested in the idea and I'm open to the idea, there's also a lot of bullshit. Uh, can I say that word in your podcast? Yeah, Sorry. Of course you, yeah. you can say way <laughs> worse than that. Well, I, I, you know, I told you in the green room, I'm not writing about Web3 or NFTs because I can't tell who's bullshitting me. Yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, one of the biggest problems is it's easy to copy paste stuff from somebody who's legit and just stick it on your page. So, you know, you probably have noticed this. I noticed this in the last two years that the quality of Google searches have, has dropped so much. Yeah, and part of that is just because for 20 years now, we've got a whole army of people who perfected search optimization yep. techniques. And then the second thing is, you know, when you're talking Web3, we're going to touch on crypto. And when, anytime you get into crypto, there's, there's a lot of people who have a lot of digital currency. They're pretty wealthy and it's pretty cheap to hire former journalists. Now uh, there's a lot of former journalists. Really? <laughs> so you can put them on the payroll and have them just bang out copy uh, that says how wonderful this crypto world is. And so if you do a Google search on these topics, what you're going to have to do is devote a fair amount of time to just filtering out stuff that's just not true or misleading or confusing. And the second thing is when you talk to people, this is another really important thing. I was at a, a, an event a week ago and there was a good lineup of speakers, but something happened that really troubled me. You know, in the public speaking business, there's a kind of rule, um, which is you don't sell from the stage. It's considered kind of bad form mm -hmm. to like be selling if you've gotten on it. You're either giving them like good information or you're, you're a sponsor. You know, you don't want to get on stage and start selling. So um, they had a couple of experts on NFTs. I'm super interested. So I was like, oh, cool. And they were right before my thing. So I listened carefully to them. Well, it turns out both speakers have a real conflict of interest because like they're investing in them and they're minting them and they're selling them and, all, and they were extolling the virtues of this thing as this new digital asset class and i was like hang on because i know for a fact that 80 percent of what's on OpenSea right now is fraudulent and deceptive how come they're not talking about that stuff and i was really tempted to chime in and i thought all right that would be uncool so here's a new thing that i do if i'm giving a talk and i'm going to touch on crypto is I just disclose uh, what, I'm, what I hold right now. And I think people should do it. If you're gonna hear from someone telling you about crypto, they should tell you what their stake is, what they're owning right now, you know, basically so they're not selling their book. I'm long Bitcoin. I've been long Bitcoin forever, you know, since 2012. So like I'm a, I've been a holder nice. for a long time nice. and ether uh, and that's it. And I've gotten rid of any other crypto that I had. Uh, I got rid of that during the pandemic and I don't hold any NFTs at this time. So um, I think it's okay to disclose that because um, if I talk about NFT 
NFTs or if I talk about crypto in this space, people know where I'm coming from. And, and by the way, last thing, anybody who's listening to this, don't take advice from some guy on the internet who's talking to you about financial information. This is not a financial recommendation. I'm not going to make give you any financial advice and and you shouldn't take it if anybody gives it to you on a podcast. It's just not very sound. Uh, yeah. Do your own work. Like figure this stuff out for yourself. That's good advice. I will. I will. And I, and I think Charlie and I've touched on this before, but you actually brought it to a head. So I will do my full disclosure moment as well, since I think it's smart because we're all sort of pseudo public figures in this world. Mm -hmm. uh, I am also long, long on Bitcoin. I'm a classic, what we call hodler of the mm -hmm. mistake that was made. That's a good little inside story of the, the reversing of the, um, the letters. Oh. I own you know significant chunks of Bitcoin and have held it for a long time. Uh, I own Ether, I own Litecoin, a little bit troubled. Uh, I own Polkadot, which is kind of remarkable. I own EOS. Uh, and a couple of other like smaller exotic things. Uh, and I own some Dogecoin because, you know, you can't be in it without taking a play. And like, it's so ridiculous. And so how, ridiculous. how about NFTs, Ted? Are you into NFTs? Um, very mildly. I'm into the concept of NFTs. Yeah, me too. And, I, and because of the company I work for, it is an entertainment company. We're investigating it. And we, we have a play in NFTs uh, with a group called Recur and we're doing other things. Uh, personally, I just own a few, what I would call small value NFTs that are not, uh, that really more for just sort of personal recreation and learning. Dipping um, a toe not, in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I get I'm not a big like buy them on open sea and see what happens. Thing. I, I mean, it's, it, it's nuts, but we, that's a different show. We'll, we'll get into that some other time. The <laughs> NFT mania. <laughs> so, yeah, so it sounds like Rob, you and I have a very similar thesis around how to play in these worlds and, and be a part of it. But Bitcoin for sure is, yeah. is something yeah. I've believed in for you know, years now and, and it's showing its strength. So, um, so the premise of Web3 is that we can take the same technologies that make Bitcoin work and apply them to a lot else. And so if you think about what a blockchain is, uh, one way to think of it is it's a distributed computing system. I know we talk about distributed ledger or decentralized ledger you know, or decentralized database. That's, that's more classically what people think of um, as, a, uh, as, a, as a blockchain. But um, the insight that Vitalik Buterin had when he created Ethereum was uh, he, he was he was looking at Bitcoin and he was looking at the Bitcoin blockchain and he noticed that you know um, that decentralized network the consensus network is computing right they're computing these instructions which in the Bitcoin blockchain are scripts so they're not quite computer scripts but he was like well, actually what if you created a Turing complete computer inside of each node then you can actually you you can have a distributed computer and what would that be like and so the vision then for uh, um, Ethereum is a decentralized computing platform. Uh, some people call it the planetary computer or the global computer or something. And some people are very critical of this, by the way. I, I don't want to sound like I'm a cheerleader for this thing because you know the total computing power, people compare it to like a Raspberry Pi. Uh, so it's it's not super powerful and it's not very fast. And you know, it has all those very known, well-known deficiencies. Uh, it's super inefficient. Uh, that's by design, that's not an accident. But remember, this is early days. You know, we're talking about technologies that are about six years old at this stage. You know, the so blockchain, what, what Bitcoin is what, 10 years old. But what, what is the relationship of Web3 to the putative metaverse? Okay, so if you accept the premise uh, that Ethereum is a decentralized computing platform, not just a currency. Okay, so we're taking the concept that, uh, or the technologies that make a, a, a digital currency possible, but now we're going to apply them to other things. At the core of it, uh, there's, there's a lot of ways to do transactions, a lot of kinds of transactions. Not all transactions are financial or monetary transactions. 
And, um, and, and the big issue, let's say the, the dragon that the people involved in Web3 want to slay is centralization. So what comes before Web3 is Web1 and Web2. So Web1, go back to the mid-90s, you know, Charlie, you were at AOL. Uh, the alternative to AOL was dial-up internet access. And you could load a web page, which is actually kind of a revolutionary thing, right? You're, in, you're on one computer, but you're actually getting a page from another computer. So you're kind of talking to a computer. Mm -hmm. I mean, today we take this stuff for granted. But back then, that was a big deal because people didn't network computers at home. So that was a pretty big deal. That's web one. It was non-interactive. Uh, they called it the read-only web because you could you could access a page, but you couldn't really do anything with it. But even when you were at AOL, I was at Sony and we were making interactive games, right? So now suddenly there's a new idea. You can interact with another computer. That's the beginning of what they call web two. Now in the, in the web three narrative, this story I'm referring to, they have a, like a really rigid timeline. They say like that happened in 2005. It's just not true. I was building interactive games in 1997 and even earlier. So uh, the timeline for Web3 story is a little bit funky, in my opinion. But the notion is that there was this first phase of the web, which was basically accessing static pages. You could read stuff on another computer, um, which is a breakthrough. And the second stage was that you could interact with things. And that brings us to the stage where then you need some sort of identity. You need a way to log into a page. Uh, you have to have some protocol for connecting with other players. Like with games, we had to find a way to match players. And now you need a way for players to communicate and so forth. So it got complicated really, really fast. And the promise of Web 1 was that it was fully decentralized. And when we say that, you know, the web architecture of the web is decentralized. That means, you know, the, the, the uh, infrastructure of the web is designed by default to be decentralized. And if you were willing to run your own web server, you could be hosting web pages. But as it turns out, most people don't want to do that. You know, like it's hard to configure a web server and keep it running and so forth. So even like by the mid 90s, companies were getting Rackspace and hiring other people to manage their servers for them. And so there was this urge to kind of like, even if you had an IT department, you didn't want to really manage servers. Um, and that is where we get to uh, consolidation and concentration in the market. By the mid by the mid 2000s, you had these giant platforms arise, and it was just a lot easier for people to do Gmail. Uh, it was a lot easier for people to host their blog on, you know, on Google Blogs or some other blogging platform. It was a lot easier for them to join a social network than to try to like keep up with everybody's ever changing email addresses and so forth when they change jobs. Uh, it was a lot easier for companies to use cloud computing when that came around in 2008, 2009, in that time frame. So in this sort of, uh, in this span of the 2000s, what we started to see is that platforms arose. So while the core infrastructure of the web is still decentralized, now you have this application layer on top, and that's highly centralized. But the timeline for this, you know, it's important, I think, to keep, we live through all this stuff. You have to remember, like, you know, in 2006, Facebook was barely a thing. It was for college kids. It was on a handful of campuses, right? YouTube barely launched in 2006. Uh, Amazon didn't offer web services until 2008. They may have been developing it before that. There was no iPhone in, until 2007, no app store until 2008. So this centralization really began to occur in earnest around 2014. And that's when 4G rolled out. And that's also when people around the world began to adopt modern smartphones. Prior to that, most people had feature phones, which had very limited internet. You could text and stuff, you could do WAP, but you couldn't really do the kinds of complicated apps that we have today. So there's a much more recent phenomenon than people realize. And if you look at the share price, I was just today looking at the share price history for Apple, Google, that starts to really take off around 2014. So by 2016, Apple was the most valuable company in the world, worth over $500 billion. No other company had broken the $500 billion mark. Um, just 15 years before that, Apple was worth $5 billion. So they had a hundred fold increase in 15 years. 
And that's largely attributed to the success of the iPhone. Uh, so by 2016, they were about five, 500 billion. But what's amazing is just two years later, uh, by, by, um, by 2018, by the middle of 2018, Apple was worth uh, 800 billion. So they added about 250 billion to their market cap. And at that point, people were speculating, can Apple break the $1 trillion threshold? And they did it. By September of 2018, Apple was worth a trillion. And just a few weeks later, Amazon touched a trillion dollars in value as well. Now, this is stratospheric, right? This is historic. Nobody had ever touched a valuation that large before. But as we all know, like by 2020, Apple was worth $1.4 trillion. Google was north of a trillion dollars. Amazon was bumping around $900 million. Microsoft's were $1.3, $1.4 trillion. And then what happened during the pandemic is really quite amazing because all of these companies increased dramatically in value. And so in the last six years, we've seen this tremendous concentration. And today, if you think about your web surfing habits or anything you do on your phone, you can't really use the internet today without touching Google, Facebook. If you're on an iPhone, you're trapped in Apple's universe, you know, so um, uh, and, and Microsoft, or you're going to probably hit the cloud from Microsoft or, or Google uh, or Amazon at some point. And so really, the internet has become very consolidated. And this is a source of some, some concern. Um, so for people, there's sort of a philosophical commitment to decentralization. And that's what's driving Web3. The idea then is we want to radically decentralize. We want to decentralize the infrastructure. We want to decentralize this application layer. We want to rip the power away from these companies. Why? Well, you know, if Apple is worth almost $3 trillion today, it's just a matter of time before they're going to be worth $5 trillion and then maybe 10 years from now, $10 trillion. Right? It's completely conceivable. As nuts as that sounds, these are the most valuable companies in the world. And they're doing it by absorbing all of the other businesses. <laughs> you know, next one mm -hmm. to go will be healthcare. And the banking business already getting unbundled, right? Payments and so forth. So like, they're just going after one sector after another, and they're absorbing it into, this, uh, into the internet sphere that they dominate. So quite a lot of people share that concern. They don't want to see these giant companies that are the size of, you know, like Apple's GD, Apple's value is worth more than the GDP of most countries in the planet. Uh, so that's a cause for some concern. Okay, so we, welcome to Web three. The principle, the, the yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So let's let's pause there for a second, Rob. That's good. That's a great, amazing overview and very very helpful. But what Charlie and I talk a lot about is the challenge of this walled garden philosophy. Mm -hmm sort of working against the philosophical goals of what you just talked about, about can we now, once we've centralized to just four or five companies with extraordinarily wealth, like wealth characteristics, mm -hmm. can we now sort of do this breakup using blockchain technology, using Web3, when the companies that are putting the most into this effort are those four or five trillion, multi-trillion dollar companies that are actually not trying to build. They may talk about it a lot, mm -hmm. but they're not trying to build a truly open architecture. Not they're trying all. to build up their yeah. version of what they want people to perceive as an open yeah. architecture. Yeah. If anything, Apple's, Apple's trying to pull more into their closed garden, right? They're, they're, they're like AOL on steroids. Yeah, so uh, you although... must have an opinion on this because when you talk out of one side of your equation of, no, no, the whole idea is decentralizing and power to the people and power to everybody. But, oh, by the way, we're a $2.7 trillion enterprise and yeah. we're going to own it this way and we're going to control it this way. Make, make no mistake. Those companies have no interest in, in supporting this. Um, you know, Google, certainly Facebook, certainly Microsoft, yeah. certainly Amazon, certainly Apple, these companies have zero interest in this Web3 concept. If they're talking about it, they're paying lip service to it. Mostly they're not. Uh, mostly they're focused on, on 
preserving what they've got. You know, Apple's, every, you know, Charlie, you know this. When Apple launches their AR, it's not going to replace the iPhone. It's going to reinforce the iPhone. Well, they, gonna... Apple, Apple's very happy with the App Store paradigm. Yeah, and it works. And it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. the most, they're incredibly profitable. So, so you've got those organizations that are resistant to change. And then you've got all the thousands of other companies that live in that ecosystem, and they're going to be resistant to change as well. So the way to think about this, I mean, here's a really simple story, but it works. It's Star Wars. You've got this tiny, well, scrappy just... rebel alliance, <laughs> and they're trying to go after the Death Star, right? And then the Death Star, in this case, is the centralizers. I, I mean, I don't buy this, but like that's the framing. That's that's why I call it. Mm. It's a story, right? It's a very easy mm -hmm. story to understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now it gets even better, Ted. It gets even better because when you look at who's funding Web three, you look at this and you go, well. Who's putting the money in? Now, last year was actually pretty interesting because there was more crypto, more investment in the crypto space last year than in all previous years right. from venture capital. $30 billion went into it. That's about 10% uh, of all venture capital that was invested last year. And last year was an epic year. It was like a record year for venture yeah. capital. But yeah. $30 billion went into it and it went into, um, it went into some interesting spaces. Uh, so when we talk about crypto, people think coins, right? We were just talking a minute ago about, you know, various coins, Dogecoin, Litecoin and stuff. Um, that's not what we're talking about in this case. The underlying technologies are going to be repurposed for decentralized applications. So think of it now as like infrastructure for application, that application layer that I said was so concentrated. Now the goal is to build like the infrastructure and there, and there's, um, you know, lots of, lots of different spaces. Um, Exchanges, uh, so 70, 78% of that 30 billion, 78% of that funding last year went into level one blockchains. So that's like Ethereum, that's a, a decentralized platforms, if mm -hmm. you will. And then, uh, and then people can build on top of that. They're, they're open, so anybody can go and build on top of that. Why is that better than building on Apple's App Store? Well, you know, we all know people who've had apps removed from Apple's App Store, and that process is extremely arbitrary. You have no idea. Uh, you know, I know many game companies that have published, submitted games, and then for some totally arbitrary reason, they don't really even get a good explanation. It's like the app gets rejected. Um, so that's the problem with the centralized control is that uh, a company can make an arbitrary or capricious decision and you, you can get kicked out. Or like if you rely on APIs, uh, you know, companies will often open up APIs, Facebook famously, Twitter famously, and then they cut off the API and all those developers who are building using the API, they're cut off and like their business is gone. It's, it's the devastating thing. So centralized platforms have a lot of control and they can also go out of business or they can get acquired. Uh, so if you've got a business that's built on top of somebody else's platform, you're at risk. So the idea of a decentralized app is that it's not controlled by anybody. Uh, anyone has access to it. It's open source. Uh, if you decide you don't like that particular thing, you can copy the software and fork it and create your own version of it. And so this is kind of like power to the people. That's that's the principle. So we're, you know, this is kind of in favor of that, that Rebel Alliance story. This is like, right. we're going to equip people with uh, superpowers here. Um, the other areas that get investment are exchanges, uh, which is no surprise. Exchanges are really important. Those are the on-ramps and off-ramps into the crypto sphere. That got about 6% of the investment last year. Another six went into NFTs, which we talked about, non-fungible tokens. Uh, the important thing about non-fungible token is it guarantees uniqueness of a digital asset. And that's important because the internet's a copying machine. You know, So if you want to preserve value in any kind of asset, an NFT is an interesting way to do it. Very controversial space. Um, and then... Um, 4% of that funding went into uh, DeFi, which is decentralized finance, very hot field, probably mm -hmm. the most significant area yeah. right now for Web3, um, but it's a real thing. And if you look at MakerDAO and so forth, these are um, thriving, they're big, there's a lot of money splashing around and sloshing around in DeFi right now. 
And this is peer-to-peer -peer lending. Now it's not regulated. And the Commodities Future, um, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission has is investigating this right now. So like watch the DeFi space. It's like super at risk right now for uh, uh, some kind of um, government regulation. Um, and then another 3% went into gaming. Uh, of course, there's a lot of decentralized gaming platforms arising and then Play on top to of those and so forth. Yeah. Also, and yeah, also. but think of, so I'm thinking of things like um, Engine in Japan or Sandbox in Sandbox Korea. Uh, so these are decentralized game platforms where anybody can build, third parties can build a game on top of the platform, um, but they can actually, they have an in-game currency and you can actually build in-game NFTs and trade them and even transport them from one game to another. So mm -hmm. those are attributes that, um, that closed, closed gaming systems don't have. Right now there's about 1500 gaming worlds, like online games. But those are completely closed. They're like your classic walled garden. You know, if you mm -hmm. if you go into sure. uh, Fortnite and you buy some skins, you can't like transport those out to Roblox. It doesn't right. work like that. Yeah. Um, and so and so what you can see then is that first of all, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of strategic diversity in this space. There's a lot of interesting ideas at work here. And this is just the early days. And there's also a heck of a lot of capital pouring into the space. But back to my question: Who's putting in the money? Well, it's Tiger. It's you know Andreessen Horowitz. These guys are not in it to make it like open source socialism, like power to the people. <laughs> like they're in it for VC incentives, which is to say they're looking to build monopolies. And so there's sort of this weird paradox. This is where it's confusing with Web3 because the on-ramps and off-ramps are highly centralized. You know, so for instance, like if you were talking to somebody who's new to cryptocurrency, I'm certain that the first, their first point of entry, if they're in the United States, is going to be Coinbase. Right, Coinbase, sure. is, it's certainly one of the hottest tra traded stocks in the crypto space and so on, but they're completely centralized. There's nothing decentralized about them. Uh, and that's true for a lot of things. Uh, there was a great blog post by Moxie Marlinspike, who is uh, the guy that created Signal. He's a crypt uh, cryptographer. And he was like, you know, gee, I'm a cryptographer. I guess I should get into crypto. So he, he, he made a few Web3 apps. And, and, the, uh, and the blog uh, that he wrote is fascinating because he, along the way, he says, look, here's another point of centralization. Here's another point of centralization. So what he noticed is like, it's super inefficient for everybody to have to manage the stuff on their own. And so we're going to gravitate to services that make it easy for us. But that's a point of centralization. And we saw this this week with the war going on in Ukraine. Uh, there were all these people who were protesting against the big exchanges like Binance saying like, why don't you shut down the Russian oligarchs and not let them you know, use your exchange to, to turn rubles into cryptocurrency? We go, well, hang on. <laughs> The whole point is decentralization. <laughs> Why do these exchanges have so much power that they can decide who gets to access their money or not, what they actually do have that kind of power? So this is a paradox at the core of Web3. And that's why um, I think the distinction I'm going to make, I know there's going to be people who get very upset with me for saying this, but there are Bitcoin maximalists, or let's call them Bitcoin fundamentalists or blockchain fundamentalists. These are people who are like, everything's got to be blockchain and blockchain is the solution for everything. And if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And for these people, every problem requires decentralization. And then there's another group, the pragmatists. And I think what you're probably hearing me say is something that's more in line with what the pragmatists would say, which is to say, we use blockchain where it's relevant and it is relevant. It can solve certain problems. In other places, it's not efficient and it's not gonna work. And there's actually some benefit to uh, you know, go faster and cheaper if we centralize. And so you're going to mix and match. Um, the, the, the blockchain fundamentalists decry this and they hate it. And there's a bit of a religious war going on. I don't really have a stake in it one way or the other. So it's fun to watch. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out. Um, I, I don't think it works to fully decentralize everything, at least not at this stage. 
you know, and then let's get to the, the fundamental. You, blockchain is is grotesquely inefficient at this stage. Yeah. Not just the, uh, the, I mean, the gas fees are out of this world. That's another you point, know, right? You can't congestion you can't in the do, networks. You they're can't slow. do microtransactions. Yeah, but you know, a lot of people criticize uh, Ethereum because it's uh, energy inefficient, and that's a fair criticism. But it, they're in the process now, migrating from uh, proof of yeah. work to proof of stake, and so you'll see a forty. Do you think, do you think that transition is going to work? Pretty interesting. It's like changing the engine on an airplane. You know, to yeah. use that old proverb. Uh, yeah. We'll see. It's risky. Um, but already now you've got other platforms that are basically, you know, kind of trying to bite a piece of Ethereum off like Solana. Yeah, like Solana yeah. and Polygon are the ones. Yeah. That... And, and they're growing very fast. In fact, if I were going to buy crypto, not that I'm giving any advice, if those are the coins to pay attention to, because they're basically saying, hey, if, if we're successful and we're only half as big as Ethereum, that's not a bad place to be. And, right. you know, the space is growing <laughs> so fast yeah. and there's so much development. There's, I should say, in addition to the investor capital that's going in, there's even more activity among developers. This is like a white hot space. I haven't seen any, this much excitement in any field since the mobile kind of revolution happened in the mid 2000s, where mm -hmm. there's just you know, like every developer is dropping what they've got and they're rushing in. And you're seeing that like high profile departures from companies like YouTube where executives are leaving, going into the crypto space. But when they say crypto, bear in mind, they're not going to like create a coin. That's not what people are doing. What they're building is decentralized infrastructure for, for web three apps. I don't know if this explanation is working. Am I getting the point across? Yeah, well, I think you've, you've touched on so many fascinating things here. I just could listen to you all night. Um, unfortunately, we've only got about uh, five minutes left uh, right. for our guests today. I have like five questions I want to ask you, but I'm afraid I'm going to plunge us into a rabbit back, hole, back, into, it, yeah. back yeah. into the rabbit hole. Uh, well, you know, I, I wanted to talk about virtual land sales. People ask me about that all the time. Uh, yeah. I just saw yesterday that um, Decentraland um, has 1,800 daily uniques. Yeah, yeah, it's a ghost so town. I mean, people paying people paying four million dollars for land in a place that's deserted. Um, yeah. To me, it's kind of shocking because they're making an awfully big bet on um, that virtual land and proximity mattering, mm -hmm. which you know, proximity has no role in the internet. I, I yeah, type it hyperlink. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if also, it's next like, door or on the other side. They're of the world. selling land for millions of dollars, and it's like, but they could create more tomorrow. Like, there's no right. limitation. I, 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 I mean, well, of course, they're trying to sell proximity, right? Be next yeah. door to Nike. Be Ooh, next door yes, to this giant dog. department yeah. store. But people don't walk down a street to get into the department store. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the irony to me is that, like, and in the meantime, Second Life is still there doing six hundred million dollars a year. They've got a million users. And it's like, if you guys want that experience, profitable. Yeah, if you want that experience profitable. with real people in the space, like go there. Uh, look, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, I don't want to dump on Decentraland or, or any of these sites. They're all new. No, and by the way, up. the guy who runs Decentraland, Victor Saitov is a really smart guy. Yeah. And, and I think a good guy. So I, I'm, I'm rooting for him, but at the same time, my mouth is hanging open. And I have to believe that a lot of the companies who are doing this are looking at it like, well, if it doesn't work out, it was great for publicity. Yeah. Well, and also maybe it's a little speculative investment for them. Maybe the thing goes up in value. But here, here's another way to think about it, Charlie, that plays right to your wheelhouse, which is um, Decentraland is a decentralized metaverse. And this is a super interesting battleground that's going to emerge. You know, here's, we're back to our Star Wars analogy, because you've got things like Decentraland and Sandbox and Engine that are trying to create decentralized game platforms or, or worlds. And at the same time, on the other side, you've got Facebook, Roblox, 
Epic with, you know, Fortnite. And those are highly centralized closed garden metaverses, right? And, you know, they're very successful, by the way, <laughs> those last three that I mentioned. And they're doing super innovative stuff. I mean, particularly like Roblox and Fortnite with the concerts and the music and, you know, and, and showing movies and art exhibitions, like they're really pushing what you can do inside of a game world. So that's pretty cool. Um, but, but there's an AOL moment coming, I think. Um, maybe if this decentralized technology works as advertised, you know, if it really works, if we can really make it efficient, if it can catch up in terms of speed and, you know, so forth, there's a lot of ifs there, a lot of execution risk. But if that can happen, then you might see an AOL moment where people say, what am I stuck in this one game world for when I could be in a decentralized game platform and migrate from world to world and check out a lot of things? Yeah, will users want that? I don't know. Uh, it's too soon to say, but that's the bet that's 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 being wagered right now, and it's a really interesting game to watch. You know, will these big platforms open up? Uh, will they shift over? You know, they all have in-game currencies, so they already have this concept that there's value created in digital assets can be traded and so forth. It's fun to watch. So, so Rob, here's my my final question as we wrap up. Tell me, in your vision, with all the things you just talked about, encapsulated many, many hours of material in a 20-minute <laughs> period there. What does 2030 look like to you? What does is, what is the year 2030 look like? Uh, to Give me, a moment to think about it. Yeah. 2030 is going to be about the 3D web. And that's a really important distinction. So often you'll hear people say that Web3 is the same as a 3D web, and that is not true. We could build a 3D web right now without any uh, any kind of crypto infrastructure. Um, and crypto infrastructure, there's nothing about it that relates to 3D. It doesn't require 3D at all. So those are two separate domains. They're both evolving really fast. Um, but my, my vision for 2030 is that uh, the web isn't going to be a thing that consists of a lot of rectangles, you know, the way this Zoom call looks right now. Uh, I think the web is going to be a place you go into, and it's going to be around us, uh, and it's going to be something that we move through, and our cars move through it, and it's going to pop up on screens and walls around us. Um, th that's either going to be awesome or dystopian. I can't predict. I can't wait for it to happen because it's like I feel like I've been working my whole life towards that goal. <laughs> so um, in that world, that 3D world is going to require people not just to participate but to create. And actually, there's a real important role there then for NFTs and for these crypto, uh, crypto solutions I'm talking about. They can play a meaningful role in a 3D web um, because through your participation, you're going to generate data objects that have value. And today, you do that all the time when you're on Facebook. You post something, you like something, you share something. So you're creating value, you know, tiny amounts of value, but over User time- User-generated content was the dirty little secret of AOL that yeah. Facebook and other social media sites uh, have exploited to the max. The users create all the content. So there's a real possibility in this 3D world that we're going to need yeah. to do a lot more of that because there's not enough yeah. 3D world, 3D developers right, no. right now. I, I, you can see it worlds. now with with you know Facebook pouring money into Horizon, right? Yeah. They're trying to create a an economy for creators that incentivizes them That's right. to build worlds, and they're trying to put tools in the hands of those creators so that they can create as many creators as possible, right? They don't want just people who can code or be graphic designers. They want people like us to go That's in there right. and be able to create a space worth sharing with another person. A tool like Canva, like something that anybody can use to make a meme or something, but it'll be a little 3D object that I can give to you. And yes. that might very well be an NFT, right? And so you start to be like, oh, this stuff does merge together, uh, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit further down the line. 
mm-hmm. that's an exciting world to be in. Because uh, right mm-hmm. now, you know, the, the deal right now with these highly centralized platforms is that the value accrues to the platforms. It doesn't even accrue to the developers necessarily. You know, So for right. instance, like if you're building a game on, on Apple's platform right now for iOS, um, you know, they say there's a 70-30 split. And game developers hate that, by the way. They always have. It's like a 30% tax. But that's not all. If you want someone to find your game, you got to pay Apple to promote the game. So all the profit that you make is going right back to Apple. So Apple gets the lion's share of that. Uh, You know, even if a game is very successful, you're pumping millions into the Apple ecosystem to promote it and make it findable. This is the danger of these highly centralized platforms is that they suck all the atmosphere out and it make it impossible for 3D uh, for third-party developers to survive, let alone mm-hmm. creators. If you look at the economics on the creator economy right now, they suck. I mean, they're just terrible. Yeah, they're whether, it's, whether it's Spotify or YouTube or whatever, a handful of people are making millions. Everybody else is making chump change and many don't make anything at all. Um, so the creator economy as it is right now is basically Uber without the car. It's not a great lifestyle, I think. Uh, it's, it's like a subsistence level lifestyle for people. So if we can get rid of these middlemen, uh, you know, if the vision of Web3 works, that means there's more to share, right? There's more for the creators themselves to get. That's a really cool vision. And maybe that's a good note to end on. Like I said, I don't want this to be so critical of Web3. I want to enkindle a little bit of hope uh, in people mm-hmm. that this actually is going to be meaningful. And, and the notion there is that we're going to all be creating value in a 3D world. Uh, maybe we can all participate in sharing that value. That is a great parting thought, Rob. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. It's great to see you, my friend, after uh, 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's our show, everybody. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.